Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rounding the Earth podcast. Rounding the Earth is a popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin. Interesting discussion on that yesterday. And everything in between. And of course, more recently, the COVID-19 pandemic. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Substack, Rumble, YouTube, Rockfin, and of course now Locals to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the earth. My name is Liam Sturgis. I am a musician, music producer, and writer slash editor coming at you live from Vancouver, British Columbia. And I will be your host for today. And of course, I don't do it alone. Please allow me to introduce to the show my co-host and the author of Rounding the Earth, Matthew Crawford. Good morning slash afternoon, Matthew. Hey, good morning. How are you feeling after a wonderful presentation you gave last night? Thanks. Uh, it, it, here's how I feel. I don't even know if that was last night or two days ago. <laughs> I, 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 kinda, I, I, I stayed up all night the previous night putting together slides and, and, uh, and reading and trying to get a hold of everything. And uh, um, there's so much going on too fast in the world. It, it's not easy to, to <clears throat> take in how much change is going on. Do you get a sense that we're being intentionally bombarded with these rapid, crazy stories that never seem to end? Uh, at this point, I'm not surprised because I just view it as um, as we are in some sort of uh, world war, and it, it, it's it's more of an information war. It yeah. is. It's not the it's not the actors that you think would be participating in a war, like uh, the, you know your ordinary nation states and. It is affecting all information channels everywhere, and that's dangerous to people. Mm. And there, there are a lot of people who wouldn't even want to be part of it. But uh, I, I feel like that's that's part of the reason we're here, right? Well, you know, we will try to do our best to simplify things as much as possible, but wherever possible, you know, simplify things to uh, to an early step principle, like um, uh. uh like uh, you know, don't don't do things that you don't have information about, right? Mm. The precautionary principle, right? It, it, just a few good principles in life in the world. Um, if you don't know where something's going, maybe you shouldn't be involved. Or yeah. Well, we're going to do a bit of that today. A bit of taking a concept that has sort of plagued us. It's very complicated and simplifying it down to the most important information. And to join us today to do that is my friend and yours, Maria Gucci. Hello, Maria. Nice to see you again, Liam. And thank you, Matthew, for offering the host, you know, for my, uh, for me being able to be here. Thank you. Yeah, very thank much. you for joining us. Now, Maria, um, there's a number of people watching who will already be familiar with your work. You've recently published uh, some very interesting things, both in video form and in paper form. But for those who don't know who you are, give us a quick introduction. Um, I'm a pharmacist by training, a hospital pharmacist primarily with a specialty in infectious diseases, uh, antimicrobial management, and um, intensive care. But I also, and I also um, made sure I, in a small hospital, I did some consulting over the last few years and I, we put into place some um, hospital compounding and manufacturing. So that gave me a good idea about manufacturing issues and what you need to do to make a good standard sterile product. Uh, 
And then um, most importantly, I work for, uh, this will be amazing for your American viewers because Canada has a, a quasi-judicial body called the PMPRB, Patent and Medicine Prices Review Board, and we regulate the prices of drugs in Canada. So I got to know the marketing practices of a lot of pharma, and I review drugs for a very, um, at a very high level for a national uh, group in order for us to assess those drugs. So a lot of drug assessment and marketing uh, background that really helped with this. Now, can you just just before we jump into the presentation, which is going to be on a bit of the the manufacturing quality, the regulatory approval process of the specifically the Pfizer BioNTech uh, COVID-19 vaccine. Can you give us a bit of background? What what got you specifically into the COVID discussion? What made you start to tackle this project? So COVID is like what can I say? It was all encompassing and a vaccine is, uh, you know, one thing with vaccines is pharmacists generally are told to stay away. This is not it, but because it was a very different kind of product, um, I went immediately to what I normally do, which is a drug assessment. So as soon as it became, um, available in January, 2021, I went to where I usually get really good information and that's European medicine. So, uh, agency, which I find the most complete, the least redacted, the most organized assessment. The FDA and Health Canada are both still far behind as far as I'm concerned, and they have detail and they're not redacted as much. And uh, so I went there how I would normally do. I just read it on spec saying, you know, what, what is this thing? And I fell off my chair and I said, how in the world can they actually give this to a human being? It probably isn't worthwhile giving to a cat or your pet. And because I thought the quality and the unanswered questions was too great. And I thought, what is going on? And then that started my little rabbit hole. And what's funny is they actually are giving these to cats and to all <laughs> other kinds of animals. And I think they're essentially the same product, yes, but maybe that's a topic product. for another day. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Well, in that case, um, we've got a presentation here. Do you want to just jump in there? Yeah, I think so. And then um, please interrupt and ask me any questions about any of this uh, stuff. Some of it is pretty um, um so as pharmacists are very detail-oriented, if it's too detail-oriented that you lose the plot, please interrupt me and, uh, and uh, make me step back to put it into context. What I find when you assess this is at first I was looking at the lipid nanoparticles because that's kind of very chemically, right? Chemistry. And I was horrified thinking, my goodness, they haven't done this. And then I went to the mRNA and now I'm back to the lipid nanoparticles. And now it's like every time, and now I'm back to the mRNA. Every time you look, there's another layer to learn, another layer to put together, another layer to reassess. So I already told you why I went to the EMA. Um, important to note, there was a leak of confidential documents to 4chan, which I don't, you know, I was told to go there and look at it. But, you know, it didn't make sense. It was then put on the another site in April 2021, which I accessed at the end of this year, last year. And um, it gave even more detail than the common technical document or the what they call the EPAR. I just want to say that when I read this, it's probably the most complex product I've ever looked at for manufacturing and even assessment. And 
it is multi-layered, multi-etc. It is basically, I can't imagine organizing the supply chain. By the way, they don't seem to have problem with supply chains to making the this vaccine. 280 different components, several different manufacturing plants. This kind of thing is not done for biologic because the differences between one plant and another for a biologic can be quite great. You try not to do it. 25 different suppliers, ultra cold storage that everyone knows, but you have to rapidly transport between sites. So you have 110 hours from the time you have the mRNA made and frozen to send it to the LPNs to, to be made into the lipid nanoparticles. And you've only got 11 days from the making the lipid nanoparticles to refreezing again to send it out to hospitals or clinics. So like, and this is going across continents. So rapid transportation between sites, very unusual for a drug product. And then here you have the um, most biologics or drugs. You would look at this black here box, the production, et cetera, cell-free, et cetera. And then you'd go to uh, basically filtration, and then you go to fill and finish. Here, especially these four boxes is what makes it much more complicated, which is uh, both purification and making the lipid nanoparticles, all right? So that you have um, the production requires a fair number of steps to actually purify what you have, dilute it out, make it stable, etc. So, and everyone, please don't forget about fill and finish. It sounds simple, it is not. This is where we're having some issues. Every single oh, sterile product, I think in the world is having issues with these plants because they're subcontracted plants. And fill and finish is exactly what it sounds like. It's you're filling uh, the, the vials with the product and therefore it is finished. Yes. No, you fill them, you cap them. You have to use the right glass. You have to use the right, um, you know, if you're going to put latex or you're going to use an aluminum cap or whatever, and all of them have to be tested. You do quality control, visual counting, you label it with the right label and package, you know, so the filling into the vials is, I mean, it's all automated, mm -hmm. but um, it's more complicated than it looks. Let's just put it like that. Maria, can you go back to the previous slide for a moment? Yes. You know, when you talk about the complications here, <clears throat> I, I know that these vaccines were approved uh, in early December mm -hmm. um, and, but they were, they were being used almost immediately like like yeah. within hours almost yeah. it, like in the uk yeah. uh I, w when was the rollout like uh, maybe december 13th or 12th i can't remember the exact day but but i mean it was it was extremely yeah fast so, so they they had already been yeah. in this process for weeks well, of months. producing the vaccine before it was before it was approved anywhere so the beginning uh, product was the product oftentimes that was used in the clinical trials. Mm. All right. So there was a, um, there was a bit of um, a crossover that occurred. Um, and I'll talk about this is part of the issue was ramping it up. Right. So the clinical trials uh, product was made by BioNTech and they had more or less perfected or they'd done a really good job of doing this kind of stuff. And it was all done in one place. Now <laughs> you had to ramp it up and do it in several places. 
but they couldn't ramp it up to do it in one. So they had to multiply it anyway. Um, I'll talk about that and what happened and what the problems were behind that. Yes. And so you had these um, uh, various supply or various sources of the mRNA product all at the same time. Yeah, but in the beginning, the December 13th, when they started injecting people, that would have been the same product that was used in the clinical trials. Does that make sense? No. Um, I This is, um, I, you've had Kevin McKernan on your show, have you not, Matthew? Yes, we have. Yeah, so I learned everything I learned about genomics was from Kevin, excellent <laughs> teacher, because we don't learn this at school, and I'm reading it. and. Um, uh, this is just for people who uh, don't understand about the um, mRNA. The most important thing to realize is it's synthetic. It is not, you know, one thing is it's not a viral mRNA and it's not human, okay? It's totally genetically engineered. So your body sees it as a synthetic product. This is what I say. The mRNA is fake because it's synthetic. This just talks, this is from um, on the left-hand side facing there. This is how the amino acid is made out of the ribosome. And we know the mRNA is a little like a code and you have a, in, a beginning start codon that tells you to start. Then you've got, you know, a bunch of things that reads it and then the stop codons. What's really interesting here is that everything, these three things, the five cap, the three prime, the stop codons, the um, open reading frame, the poly A tail, they all have to work together. Okay. Because if one changes, then you have another thing. So these things to make the amount of protein that was made does not happen all at once. I don't care what anyone says. There's no way you come up with this nice little genetically programmed mRNA and not have that tested for quite some time. Okay, this, you know, if you've anyone has done stuff, you know, you change one little thing and then the other thing goes off because you're changing three or four things at the same time. The other thing, because it's synthetic, and I'm sure Kevin has said all this, you got aberrant protein production, misfolding of the protein, errors on translation. And um, I don't know if anyone's talked about homology with human proteins. That is a problem. One issue is this three prime um, untranslated unit or the stop codons. There's two in Pfizer, three in Moderna. Everybody else has one normal viral or human thing. And this um, this part is human. That part's human. The rest of it is not. So it's possible you get autoantibodies against that um, those um, stop codons that are there. Yeah. And, and for, for anybody watching that, you know, that may mean a permanent autoimmune condition. Once your body is trained to attack something that is part of your body, it's not going to stop. Um, the EMA actually, I think, uh, reviewed this product very much like a genetic product as opposed to the FDA and Health Canada, which looked at it as a vaccine. This had a little bit more stuff. So they actually asked questions that were uh, very appropriate on their rolling review, the stuff that um, I thought they asked the question. So for me, when I read this, I went, okay, we have a real problem because I know how drug companies market their drugs. So remember the mRNA is what we would call in the pharmacy world or the chemical world, a pro-drug. It is not what's the active substance, right? The active part is the spike protein that you make. 
correct, from the mRNA. You have to basically metabolize the mRNA to get the spike protein. So if we look at it like a drug, I have a drug like enalapril, which is used for blood pressure. It gets metabolized to the liver to the active form, enalaprilat, okay? And so if I open up, if I open up um, a label or a, a patient insert, a product insert, I see the structure of the prodrug and I see the structure of what it gets metabolized into. And here, I challenge anyone to tell me if they know what the spike protein produced by the synthetic mRNA looks like, if we see anybody or what it does. We do know based on the EMA, the size is different. The Wuhan spike is 141 kilodaltons and the mRNA is 180 produced by the, by the um, Pfizer. Wow. Was, yeah. That's and not trivial. Not trivial. Right. That that says that um, if you could go back to that for a second, because uh, yeah, in the previous slide, you mentioned protein, protein misfoldings. And this is where people are worried about, you know, the possibility of something like a prion disease. You know, we, we really don't even know until or well, I'm, you know, th there are some possible ways to predict, um, you know, what might happen uh, when the protein is folded in a different way. But that's that's a very, very differently uh, folded protein. You can see on the left, there's this is like having um, a ball of yarn that you've knitted into one position, and then you're told that this other position is is uh, I don't know twenty eight percent longer. Right. And and you're trying to imagine well how how did this how does this thing wind up being this other thing? Wow. Wow is right. And so you know I took it from a drug, and I, so what's even worse, and I quoted this directly. This is from the EMA. Um, EPAR, so it's actually published on their site. A severe deficiency is that no biological characterization is presented, and the language is very tough here, very, very tough. It is not found acceptable, and the dosage should be updated with relevant information. The strategy to determine the potency and assay should be described. Results should be included. So basically, we don't know what you're producing, and we don't like it, and we need you to show us. Okay, so this is what the EMA gave them a huge regulatory flag and said, we need that data because it got approved December. And they said by J July 2021, you should give us the data. That data was not given to them. It was still not met on a year later. And the way I understand it, so I'll go back. The idea here, the difference is because it has sugars on it. Okay, it's glycosylated. So that, so, you know, it becomes a glycoprotein and that's not uncommon at all. And it happens not infrequently. So this was the uh, reason they gave to the EMA. And um, Kevin says, well, and to me, it was like, well, just strip it off and do the test again, do the Western blot. I'm sure you can strip off sugars is not difficult and do it again. And both Moderna and Pfizer have refused to do that. They refuse to do that. And what's interesting, this is straight from that rolling review. This is the different samples from different um, people or different plants making the mRNA. And you can see that every single one of these, the Western blot shows the size is 180 or two up to 210. And, you know, they look the same, but they're bigger than the 141. Oh, but it has sugars on it. So that may be true. However, 
It has been my experience working in drug pricing when the drug companies refuse to do something that the regulator asks them to do and refuses it for a long, long time, then there is a problem. And it's very suspicious to me. And I've been after this for all the time. What exactly is that mRNA producing? So you would think, right, that somebody out there would actually look at this, okay? Because this should not be a problem that nobody knows about, okay? And so this is the only paper I could find. It's a preprint and will never probably be published. And what this is a small little pharmacy school in Ohio in the middle of nowhere with 5,000 people, 5,000 students. And they did a Western blot, just like I showed you previously. And they found that you had expression for up to 12 days. And you can see all the sizes on the Western blot. Look at this. We have one at 180 and maybe up there at 210. And we have this big one here around 75 and a whole bunch of little things. Like it's a smear, as Kevin McKernan says. So that means you're having a ton of isoforms and you're having a ton of, you know, proteins that are made that are probably not spike. And they called, and I'd like you to read this, in communications with Moderna and Pfizer regarding the proteins expressed by the synthetic vaccines, each company's medical information group said, oh, we haven't looked at the protein for more than 48 hours. And owing to the proprietary status, they would not disclose any information related to the nature of the protein that was expressed. Basically, it is illegal for you to actually figure this out on your own. And, and, and not only that, but we have a spread of proteins being produced. Right. A, uh, it's kind of like the viral cloud. Um, and, and any of them, one slight change might have a very different effect. One of so We don't even know necessarily without further study whether or not the, the spread of different proteins. I mean, for one person, it might be innocuous. For another person, it might have a very serious repercussion because you know our, our the biochemistry is is not uniform across bodies no no and this is part of the uh, uh one of the reasons for the variability but i guess the point i wanted also to make is that they're using proprietary that is it is you know that won't allow us to share that information i'm sorry but i worked I saw a ton of proprietary information as a regulator of pricing, which is even in some ways much more sensitive than, you know, the structure of a drug. Um, there is no reason why the regulators cannot look at it and just say, yep, this looks good. You know, the, the characterization was good. We had some issues, but it wasn't a big deal and it's acceptable. That's all they had to say. They don't have to publish it. They don't have to show, but the regulators should be able to look at it and say that even that's not done. And that to me was a big red flag. And I've been after this for a long, long time because um, so it's proprietary. And I don't understand, even if that is the case, why the regulators cannot see it. So we talked about how it came, you know, how the, uh, um, how the vaccine rollout went. Um, it's important to know that the commercial product today is not the same in the clinical trials because they had to scale it up, okay? So if we look at this, this is straight from that rolling, like that secret dump. 
So they looked at RNA integrity, which just meant how much of it was the intact mRNA before it got shipped over to make the LMPs. And you can see here that even in the best case scenario, each batch would have 77 to 86 is intact mRNA. The rest of it is contaminants or shortened mRNA or truncated or fragmented. Um, then the Pfizer plant in Andover, Massachusetts, which are no slouches, says Kevin McKernan, they know what they're doing. They still had problems making a really good mRNA product. And uh, Belgium had even more, and that's problems. And here we're down to 55%. So 45% is contaminants. So they had a ton, a ton of trouble trying to make a pure mRNA or a repeatable one with each batch. And, and do we even know what that does? Let, let's say that you've got, um, you know, this other, you know, if you have 55% of the mRNA that you want. Right. You know, what is the other 45%? I mean, you know, you know what we call a, a smaller piece of a virus? Uh, we, we call it a virus in, in the sense, at least, that it can still interact with, with the system. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's uh, it's genetic information. Yes. And if you have genetic information in a lipid nanoparticle and, and transfection occurs, okay, so if it's incomplete genetic information, what happens? If I run half a computer program, what happens? Um, well, in some cases, something can happen. Yep. Yep. So this is the picture, basically, of the one side on the left is the production. It's a two-step reaction where they made the mRNA off of the DNA templates, right? And then they capped it separately with the poly-A tail. On the commercial ramped-up version, they did it all in one step. So a lot of them did not get capped, okay? And uh, you have truncated mRNA, which means that they don't have the poly-A tail on them, or you have fragmented, which just is a section of the mRNA that's there. You also have something called double-stranded RNA, which is a contaminant that is very immunogenic, and you have leftover bits of DNA. This is absolute, This is normal. Anytime you make any kind of proteins like this, you will, but you need to get rid of it and make it as low as possible. So you see, uh, so the big issue is purifying it. And on the lab scale, they use the, um, they use magnetic beads to purify it. And this is my theory that in the beginning, remember we had all those magnetic arms and you know how we had issues. And my theory was that this magnetic beads are the ones that got sent off to have, be made into LPNs. And that's why people were magnetic for the first few months. No, Maria, can I just, yeah, can I, I, we really, this is an important topic whenever it comes up. This is one of those things that happened. It was a big phenomenon. It got quickly brushed aside as conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. And even now within our circles, no one talks about it, but mm -hmm. this was very much a thing. Mm -hmm. And here's my question. And then I know Matthew has a few things he wants to, but um, uh, Maria, I didn't get this shot and I, experienced this magnetic phenomenon you in, did, the place, eh? in the place that people like in the place where I've gotten previous vaccines. And so my, my question is on, on the process you just described, is this a unique process to, to you know, gene transfer based uh, vaccines no. or is this, is there an explanation for vaccines in general that could, that could explain that, what's happening? That I can't answer, that. but I can tell you using magnetic beads to purify things is very common. Right. It's very common to do. 
it, it's very common. It's kind of standard. It can be very accurate, right? Because the magnetic beads, you can put antibodies on them. So you take the protein you want out and then you just suck up the supernatant. So the amount of, you know, um, leftover crap is very little. So you, it's easier to make it purified. So, and that's a common process, okay? Mm. And they're likely not very toxic. I will say it's unlikely it's toxic and um, there's small, tiny amounts, but you know, we ended up with this magnetic phenomenon. That is my theory, okay? Because it makes sense knowing what I know from here, I cannot verify that's the case, except, except that Pfizer put out a press release in April of 2021 saying, oh, Good people are hard to find. You know, we've had to have, we've had to have look for people. It's been hard to find good people to do our processes. And I thought, okay, <laughs> I thought that is, uh, you know, maybe an admission there were issues. So, so okay, That's but my the, theory only. I so don't have big, data. But the point, the point is, there are plenty of non-conspiracy theory type, non-graphene oxide nanobot explanations it doesn't yes. need to be restricted even to the theory you just laid out it seems to me there are plenty of very legitimate reasons whether accidental or not that such magnetic phenomenon could occur as a result of yeah. you know yeah. okay I, I i hope people hear that and at least feel a little bit like they're not crazy <laughs> yeah yeah because you have to you know i'm a clinician too so i trust when patients tell me things are happening i'm not going to say you're nuts Okay, I'm going to say it doesn't make sense or like I have to think about it. And this was my uh, way out thinking that, yeah, you know, it's possible. So, again, the contaminants, are they translate into proteins and are they associated with autoimmunity? This was a big question that the um, EMA had and actually wanted an explanation from they want an explanation from the um, Pfizer to say, you know, are these things going to cause a problem or not? Because this is a, you know, genetic product. What's interesting is in those emails back and forth, when they talked about the amount of products, the FDA and Health Canada said, well, it doesn't have a poly A tail on it, so it won't be translated. What are you worried about EMA? We think this is okay. So there was two ways of, you know, so that's what the FDA didn't think this was a problem. The EMA did, which I thought was interesting. And I think it goes back to how it was actually assessed. I, I, I'd like to go back to the, to the magnetic beads for a moment. Because, <laughs> <clears throat> um, like I, I hear this and I, I want to learn more before I'm comfortable with this. Yeah. Uh, right. Like, uh, and in fact, I actually, I know um, I have a good friend who is a, who's a magnetic excuse me, a, a magnet manufacturer. He makes those tiny little magnets that can be like ball bearings and engines and other products. Um, so I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to ask him about this because he actually recommended to me. Um, oh, <laughs> what am I drinking? Uh, you know, pure moonshine. No, I, this is, um, this is my coffee in the morning. We do cold brew at home and we make it at the beginning of the week and drink it all week. Um, and then put a little white chocolate in it. So, <clears throat> uh, but going back to the magnets, I, I, I want to learn more before I'm comfortable that this does not harm me in some way. Because when I, when I think about that, I think, okay, everything that my body interacts with, with a magnetic field, mm. we're interacting with that differently now. Mm. And what does that mean? I don't know what that means. I, I, you know, I went several courses deep studying, uh, you know, physics as an undergraduate student. I, 
I don't even know where to begin to 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 think about that. And I think, and in general, we don't know. Like, um, it, you know, there are people who sleep with magnets behind their heads, right? And and I don't know if that has an effect or what effect that it has. There are people who swear by it, um, but it, it that 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 feels weird to me that that we would not um, that that we would just even if it's not like a chemical toxic effect. Right. I, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that. And I, I'm, I'm going to look this up after, see if, see what I can find, because yeah. that, that just seems like a strange thing for me to, to just want to accept putting magnets in my body. We're told don't swallow magnets, right? Yeah, they are. It's a very, very small amount. And I think if it's iron, your body knows how to handle tiny amounts of iron. Okay. Uh, Cause it's a common thing. If um, so, that is my read. I went and did some research, but not very much in depth. And, um, you know, generally speaking, it's likely not a real problem, but it might be in kids and might be in skinny little old ladies. Who knows? And it might be in an individual. Agreed. I'm just saying that um, this was my theory. And, and, and somebody might prove me wrong, which is fine. And, and the way we do that, I think we need to. We need somebody... Uh, who cares very much about this topic, I'm sure there are many, should continue to crack down on this and try to understand in more depth what's happened, of course. Um, yeah. Someone, uh, well, first of all, don't swallow magnets, good advice. Yeah, we don't give too much medical advice here, but uh, that's a pretty good one. Um, and now I just, so that this person uh, doesn't feel like we're skipping over them, I want to acknowledge there's also this strange, another weird phenomenon that people were talking about was this notion of of sort of fluorescence um, in people who have taken the shots. And I think that, correct me if I'm wrong, luciferase was the, the protein uh, used in the clinical trial context, mm -hmm. right? And that's sort of what luciferase is used for, is, is to interact with light uh, to be able to track uh, the movement of, of a drug in the body. Are you going to be touching on, on any aspect of that? No, um, so, that I don't know much about. Um, it could be, like they said there, the polyethylene glycol part, maybe having a slight fluorescence to it. and um, But I cannot explain that part. And I haven't looked into it. Actually, it's the first time I've, I know about fluorescent veins after the injection. Okay, well, let's put a pin in that as a topic and perhaps we can revisit it. I don't want to get us too far off track. Anyway, so um, the commercial upgrading was a real problem. And this is what a drug company does and what a regulator does. It says, okay, the mRNA coming out at the end, which is the, you know, the drug substance, has to meet what we call critical quality attributes. And so um, it just tells you what, is required. And so you see here for purity, it had to be more than 50% intact RNA. The five prime cap has to be on at least 50% so that the rest who don't have the five prime cap won't be translated, that's for sure. And the poly A tail has to be more than 70%. And the poly A tail caused lots of problems on how to measure it, which I will get into later. And then we talk about the, this is one thing I do not know. And I've been trying to find what other biologics and other um, vaccines, what is standard for the amount of double-stranded RNA? Because that's a contaminant and everybody should get rid of as much as possible of it because it's very immunogenic. And um, so here we had a thousand picograms per every microgram of RNA. So if you have 
30 micrograms of RNA per dose, you know, you, you've got a fair amount of double-stranded RNA, and I don't know if that causes a problem or not. There was one paper that suggested the myocarditis might be partially due to the double-stranded RNA in there, but that hasn't been proven at all. Well, I'm, I'm putting that as a question as um, because nobody talks about it, and I don't know how. Oh, we've they, they got her. <laughs> um, okay, that's very interesting. That's the first time we've had someone completely drop off. I wonder if her browser crashed. Um, I mean, presumably she'll be back on. So do we want to use this as a moment to uh, to catch up on what we've heard so far? <laughs> sure. Um, and, you know, thinking one of the biggest thing, the things that bothers me about all of this is that is that we're told not to study this. Right. We're, we're told um, we're told, you know, don't you know, nobody test any of these vials. You know, nobody do any kind of outside analysis. Um, this seem this seems like a, a very, very big leap past, um, informed consent. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, well, and what, what's interesting is there seem to be genuine legal concerns, like a legal risk to anybody who presumably still legally acquires a vial and then wants to undergo an analysis of it. And we've had some colleagues who, appear to have successfully done so. And I've never really understood uh, if they are in fact doing something risky there, but it's, it's like before, during, and after you're not allowed to look. Right. And, and this seems like a national security issue. Like there have been a lot of national security issues wrapped up in the pandemic, but this seems like one on its own. Uh, as in, you know, if a corporation has uh, a, a closer relationship with one country than another, well, then it has the ability to, you know, poison or sabotage a country on behalf of the other or just or on behalf of its own interests or even to, you know, if you've got sort of a tripod of power, uh, if a corporation uh, can can shift the balance of power between one or the other, then both nations are now beholden to the corporation. So there's a lot of game theory in play by not uh, by, by being able to hide that information. So I just wanted to to say that out loud, that's that's a that's a national security issue. Welcome back, Maria. Yeah, what happened? Oh, <laughs> uh, people were uh, were it was spooky. Where did she go? Someone uh, is rather dark. So suggested a, let's say a virtual drone strike. Um, <laughs> but you're here. That's the I important am. part. So I think I left off here about the sterility issues. You heard that, right? Okay. And um, so let's talk about the lipids because the lipids are really quite fascinating. There's actually more data on the lipids than not. And as you know, so this is one of the biggest things that caused me problems when I first reviewed it because the way they reviewed it is not at all what you would expect. So these are the full four mRNA lipids that are used. The important ones are this one, the ALC0315, which is the cationic lipid, which means it is very, has um, charge and um, is reactive. This is the polyethylene glycol one, which is like other pegs. Um, you know, at the beginning, I was really worried about this one. This one looks like it's just a standard pegylated lipid, which is 
strange. This DSGP was used in another product. It is very uh, similar to phosphocholine that, or phospho, I forget what it's called, but uh, similar like egg yolk protein. So um, again, unlikely to be a problem and then plain old cholesterol. So these are the two that were issued that were the problem. And they'd only been used in the lab, so they weren't at pharmaceutical grade, okay? And this was one of the biggest issues. They're not a pharmaceutical grade. What does that mean? They're not pure. They had metals in them, quite a bit, I thought. They had quite a bit of metals like lead and mercury and arsenic and lithium. And um, they're in small, small quantities um, that aren't, were below the standard that for toxicity, but not something you would want in a drug product. So they had to work very hard to get rid of all that. These are very not water soluble. So they're stored in chloroform or ethanol. So you had to make sure that your end product had no chloroform or ethanol left over in there. Um, so that was all the kind of issues that were going on with the lipids and um, they had to work. And also they had to train people to make the lipids because you had to use different companies. And again, it's always hard to make sure that every company makes the lipids to the same standard. So they had issues with that. And of course, the steps in manufacturing weren't even known. So BioNTech gave them, here's the lipid, the EMA, and they didn't even have the chemical steps, one after the other after the other. And that freaked them out. And of course, the pharmacology and the kinetics are unknown, which they did not really do, as we know. The EMA are the ones who asked for kinetics data, FDA and Health Canada did not. It was the EMA who asked for the data to be uh, to be done. So they did a very small thing. Now, this is the greatest picture ever for me. This, I think, tells everybody how they're made, okay? Because that's a big black hole for people. And so the lipids are in ethanol because they're only soluble in ethanol. The mRNA is in water. And you have it at a very low pH, a pH 5. As you increase the pH and you solvent and you add each lipid separately, one after the other, in exactly the right amount at exactly the right time, and you jet, you jet them in at exactly the right rate, and you stir them at exactly the right, then you end up with this nice little picture of a lipid nanoparticle with the mRNA on the inside, all right? It's all wrong, okay? That's not how they look. That's not what they are. And they really didn't know what they were doing with the lipid nanoparticles until about six to eight months into, into the rollout, really. The mixing of the LMPs is proprietary. Even Moderna and Pfizer don't know about it. It's a whole separate patent issue. The structures weren't really known. The stability of the LMPs over time, there's something called the Oswald effect so that they get bigger over time. Okay, inevitably, that usually takes a long time, like months, maybe a year. But it's very dependent, as you can see, on size and temperature. And the size range of the LMPs were much smaller in the, uh, in the trials than they were commercially. So now we're running between 40 and 180 nanometers, which is quite a range in size of LMPs probably doesn't make that much of a difference, but I thought it may affect distribution or efficacy. The bigger ones go somewhere else and the little ones go somewhere else. And we don't know if that's true or not, whether uh, the sizes make any difference where they go. 
And the encapsulation rate is how many of those LMPs actually have mRNA in them. If you think they all have mRNA in them, no. About 20, maybe 25% do not. So, you know, it feels to me like, like we should not be relying on the trials that took place to tell us much all about these vaccines. Like every, every, yeah. uh, every time I look a little bit closer, every time I talk to somebody new, um, I hear something that says, like, why are these trials even a valid uh, way to determine what's going to happen? And if, if we were not far enough into these technologies to know the difference in, in tolerance ranges for sizes of the LMPs, and, and then we don't know how to control that. We, we, you know, this is like, uh, like going to a car manufacturer. When you look at, you know, production processes for Toyota versus Lexus, even though you have a lot of the, you know, you have the same company, you know, uh, the same engineering processes, except that for, for the Lexus, uh, they would throw away parts that didn't meet certain tolerance levels. Why? Because it does make a difference. You know, it's going to mm -hmm. make a difference in the engine over time. Um, you know, it, it, it's going to be a little bit different for any kind of machine or product that you make. Um, and, and, and I, you know, I, I do, I do know that we do amazing things with science. We do amazing things with technology and engineering. And I'm not sure that I don't trust that we could, we can come up with something, but um, the fact that they just don't seem to, to care, you know, <laughs> That's I, it. like th that right there, just, it, it just blows me out of the water. Like, you know, these are not regulatory agencies when yeah. they don't care about that. When they, and just wait till I have something to show you, which to me, and so this thing is that, oh, it's too hard to make. We didn't know what we're doing, you know, et cetera. And we're working on it. I do give them credit. Things are better now than they were in December, 2020. There's no doubt in my mind, they're much better with the LMPs and making them. Okay. That has improved. Um, I just wanted to say that, you know, how we, think that the LMPs are in the middle like that, this is what they actually look like. They're in blebs at the edge. So you can imagine transfecting and, and who knows if that has water in it. We don't know how many mRNAs are in this, but it doesn't, it's not what you expect. It's not like it's in the middle. Okay. And you know, these are no longer round. They're more elliptical. Does that change the way it goes through the blood? Do you know what I'm saying? Probably not, but, and then over on the other side, here's a great little study. Somebody did freeze thaw several times. I don't know how many times, but probably, probably four or greater. And you can see here that the LMP start breaking apart over time, right? They start going together, right? They, they merge together. You can see where the uh, mRNA is, and then eventually they'll burst. And is that happening? And my guess is yes, depending on the situation. In fact, I just got a paper from a friend of mine that uh, some people, um, some um, researchers in Japan were actually looking at this. And if you don't have uh, sugar in the bile and you freeze it, they, they'll break apart because the ice sugar crystals will break apart the LMPs. And if you decide to shake the, um, shake the vials, which you're not supposed to do, and tell me any, you know, I mean, how many nurses and pharmacists will go and shake the vials like this. You're not supposed to do it. Well, they'll break apart. So um, there are issues around um, storage, temperature, pH, et cetera, with these lipid nanoparticles. So if you have something like this on the right-hand side, I mean, are you, do you have naked mRNA in the vials that you're giving to somebody, right? That's a question I had, and I think it's possible. So, uh, yeah. 
some of the outstanding issue, um, drug interactions. Do we have drug interactions with um, this product? The answer is yes, and nobody would have ever thought that. And in fact, I just came across a part that said, Pfizer told them, oh, to EMA, don't look at drug interactions here. Our mRNA is way too big to go into the CYP450 system. You know, don't bother with, with drug interactions because we don't have any. It's just impossible to happen. And now we have an interaction with psychotropic drugs such as Clozero that actually ended up with a patient in hospital. And it's very common if you talk to the psychiatrists on patients who are on psychotropic drugs such as Clozero, which is used for very serious schizophrenia. They um, and the only reason, the only reason was this picked up is because if you're on Clausewitz, you have to get your white count checked regularly because on occasion it drops your white count out of the blue, and everybody's white count dropped right after they got the uh, the vaccine. Um, but it's transient, so uh, transportation of the LMPs through the body, yes, we don't know. Um, metabolism and limit. Okay, one thing that. Um, in a lot of discussions I've read, nobody talks of how do you get rid of the mRNA and how do you get rid of the individual lipids? So when we talk pharmacokinetics, there's four parts, absorption, distribution, metabolism, and elimination. How do you get rid of these individual lipids? And I can tell you that the cationic lipid, it's metabolized through the liver, goes mostly through your feces. That's how you get rid of it. And it takes a long, long time. The half-life we think is about three weeks. And usually to get rid of a drug, it's five times the half-life. So 15, four months before you get rid of every last bit of your cationic lipid for one dose. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then there's something that they found out called the late migrating species. And it doesn't sound like a big deal, this is huge because what I will talk about a little later, because what it shows is that neither Pfizer nor Moderna actually knew what they were doing with the, with the lipid nanoparticles and the mRNA. Then we talked about fill and finish, quality control, capping, labeling, labeling, visual inspection, and packaging. This is uh, what is required at the end. The most important thing here is how do you determine potency in vitro expression, how do we know that the product that's in the drug product is actually going to make a protein? They had a test called the in vitro expression. So they use cell flow cytometry and they came up with a standardized test that took up quite a few months before they finally decided that the test is okay, where they use hex cells and they put a, the specific number amount of the actual drug product and they looked to see how much protein was made. Not what it looked like, but how much was positive. You can see here, 30% positive cells, okay? So not all cells will produce the mRNA, will produce the spike protein, not all. So they're asking for 30%, and that's probably because the mRNA amount in those lipid nanoparticles varies so much. That's my who, guess. Who decided, uh, you know, uh, what, is that, what is that based on? It seems like, like this is a brand new product, right? And so when, when you're deciding on a specification like that, like, who decides? Yes. This is the most important question that nobody really talks about. You've hit the nail on the head. Every one of these acceptance criteria had to be negotiated with Pfizer and BioNTech, okay? It basically was a negotiated process. And so for in vitro expression and the amount of um, the fights between the two regulator and the drug company was how do we assess in vitro expression and then the poly A tail. They didn't like what. And 
Um, I do have a slide on assays, do I? Yeah, actually, yes. I, I, I want to say a little bit more about that. Like, like this, this, the fact that that these target numbers for what's acceptable are negotiated between the regulators and the corporation. I want to say something about that because I I know a little bit about um, the mathematics and the game theory of you know negotiation theory and auction theory. It, it, it's it's similar um, similar mathematics. You can totally fool people in a negotiation who are not trained in the mathematics of negotiations. You know there there are techniques, you know anchoring, um, psychological techniques. Uh, you know if let, let's say that the that the drug companies wanted it to be thirty percent, they may have started negotiating at five. But even beyond that, um, you have um, you have perverse incentives, right? If there's a reason why something should be ignored. You know, you, you may not mention it as, as often as possible or, or make it seem like something else is more important and focus, you know, focus on it. But with a new product, it feels like we should be much, much more concerned about that. And the entire process, like I, I, like now I want to see documents of the negotiation process. I feel like that that is key to understanding what might have taken place. Yes, yes. Yes, absolutely key, Matthew, absolutely key. Some of these are fairly well accepted, okay? Like some things that were already in the works uh, were fairly accepted. Um, but the lipid identities, retention times, we'll get into that. The identity of the coded was RT-PCR. Is that the best, you know, the analytical procedure? Is that the best one to be used, okay? What is standard with a brand new product? This is what we call a pharmaceutical standard, okay? So every component that goes in, every test that is used has a standard that you have to use. Like, you know, the, we have the United States Pharmacopeia. So if I make a drug in the hospital, if I make chemotherapy, I have a standard to go to and say, okay, you know, the place has to be wiped down three times, you know, you have to wipe it with this, etc. You have to wait two minutes before you put the needle into here, you know, stuff like that. There's a whole standard and a whole process and by which you do things. All right. For this product, there wasn't any. And, uh, and most of those processes were in-house developed by BioNTech. And if you look at the rolling review, I can see the EMA reviewers going, well, you know, this has to be externally validated. Like you want me to accept your standard assay? You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna want it sent out and make sure what you're doing is the right thing. All of them had to be externally validated. Most of them have been all right by now, but it took a year, a year and a half before these were all uh, made uh, to be workable and standard. And the ones that caused the most problems were the in vitro expression and something about the uh, poly A tail and how you test that. And in fact, I think that's still a problem. As and far as negotiation, Matthew, um, yes, we had that. I saw that happen very well when we would, when the drug companies would come to negotiate a price, okay? Right? They would come and say, well, I would say to them, or we would say that price is too big. And they'll say, blah, 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 blah. And we would have these. I call whoever used the guidelines or the process by which the regulatory bodies had set up better wins, okay? So you basically, it's like a process that you go through, if I, exactly what you said, a negotiation process, you know, and who who gets it better or who doesn't. And needless to say, sometimes, um, you know, 
I sometimes won with them, actually, with the drug companies. I told them they're full of crapola and um, the stuff that they made me do makes me laugh. But anyway. I'm going to mention this for uh, for anybody who's watching. Um, my wife is actually currently involved in research um, measuring uh, mRNA in the blood, in, mm -hmm. in blood plasma uh, mm -hmm. after the injection. Like, what does that curve look like? Mm -hmm. And it goes up and it comes down after each injection. And it appears to be, um, prime, you know, most of this process happens over a two-week period, right. you know, going up and then back down. Um, but the fact of the matter is that's not even published research yet. Yes. Right. Most people like it, I, I can make that claim. Right. And nobody even knows if I'm right. And for some people, for some people, there wasn't even mRNA showing up in the blood plasma. I, I don't know uh, if I should say that out loud. This is this is not uh -huh. not even in preprint. It's not published. But uh, you, you had very, very different measurements. And you, it looked like you had uh, different measurements between men and women. And it was not a high end. Right. There, there, not enough people to like make really conclusive, you know, uh, to have really conclusive thoughts about what's going to happen. But uh, Matthew, this makes total sense. In late 2022, yes. to not know that just seems yes. um, you know, mind-blowingly yes. irresponsible, unregulated. Yes, absolutely. You hit it on the head. And I'm not surprised. I, you know, I'm not surprised that the mRNA doesn't show up based on what I've already shown you, right? You know, I'm not surprised certain patient, uh, patients will not make spike protein at all or very, very small amounts. Um, so the assays was one big thing that, um, oh, how do I get this to work? Oh, guys, here. Yes, the assay specifications, this is a huge thing, right? There was no compendial standards. Everything had to be externally validated. So here's an example of what that caused because of this, um, because they, no one knew what the standard should be. The uh, how you test the LMP, you put it through an HPLC and you get this big, nice little peak that says, okay, all this HPLC. Is, yeah, you do it uh, through an HPLC. Well, uh, what is that uh, for? A high, for me? high yeah. performance liquid chromatography. Okay, thank you. All right. So, and you just see this little peak. But what they did is they used another more, uh, don't ask me what RPIP, I forget it, but it's a much more sensitive um, HPLC. And they found that you had two peaks a smaller one, and then a bigger one. And what it showed is something was happening to the lipid nanoparticles that was making it change, like something was metabolized in there. And what happened was that the mRNA was chemically modified by the cationic lipid inside the LNPs. All right? This was published by Moderna at the end of 2021. And this was missed by analytical techniques. And the great thing for us, it means the mRNA is untranslatable and it happens over time so that you can have what's called adducts so that the mRNA becomes hydrolyzed by the cationic lipid. And Moderna said, oh, it isn't supposed to happen because, you know, this only happens if you have a metal callus. Oops, maybe we have too many metals in our lipids. Maybe we got to get rid of the metals in the lipids and maybe this doesn't happen. So I'm just telling you, I read this and went, you know, nobody knows what they're doing. You know, this is the kind of thing that needed to be resolved before you make the vaccine, you know? It, and so you're you're fixing all the errors and all the issues as you're rolling it out. It's truly amazing. And if you hydrolyze and metabolize the mRNA, can you also do that? Can the cationic lipids also do that to the DNA? Nobody knows.
So assay is really important, what you brought up. So as far as I'm concerned, when I read and et cetera, is that we're looking at batch variability. I'm beginning to think that each vial is variable, that the vial, each individual vial is varying from the next vial and might be even greater than batch variability. You got aggregate, you got color, you got... Anyone heard about the stainless steel particles in Moderna? Anyone heard about that case? In, in Japan, right? Yes. Did anyone know about what happened there? Because I read the actual report done by Takeda, which was the partner in Japan. Okay, I, have, I have not read the report. So I, I, I know about the circumstances. And I, I know that they, you know, they, they rejected some seven-digit number of vials. But so, so what did it say? Well, what happened is that in the there was a misalignment with um, the filling things with the ball bearings. So every time it moved, shards of stainless steel would come off and go into the vials. Okay, every time. So the the technician working at late at night was noticing this and called up the engineer. Said, "What do I do about it?" And he goes, "Oh, just change this this little." This little dial, it should be okay. So that's what the technician did. But the engineer was supposed to come in and check. And they sent them out, okay? They sent them out knowing this is potentially a problem. I, and for me, I you're supposed to do quality. The fill and finish is supposed to do uh, quality control visually. So these were big things. They were like 300 by 500 microns, okay? So almost half a millimeter long. Like you could see these with your naked eyes. And I don't know how it could possibly have left the factory, okay? Possibly. And even under these conditions, the FDA didn't close, you know, the plant was in, or the EMA didn't even close the plant because the plant that it came from was in Spain. All right. And luckily, all of these went to Japan and some smart pharmacists actually saw the. Yeah. So it is unbelievable to me that something like this could happen and the whole thing was not shut down and the whole plant cleaned out and done and the people fired and everything like so it's beyond comprehension. What was Takeda's role? Were they fill and finish? Yes. No, fill and finish. They were just the marketing holder for Japan, right? They held the marketing authority. So they are still responsible indirectly for the quality control. So, um, oh, okay. So they were, they, they marketed the, they had a, a role in the market. distribution. Correct. Correct. Oh, that yeah. changes an aspect of my research. Thank you. Yeah. yeah well, so, and when I think about this, um, there was a an interview the other day uh, on children's health defense. It involved numerous people, uh, including Dr. Malone and Merrill Nass, and they're talking about um, they were talking about the possibility that what this all represents is the military making sure that there is a certain substantial capacity for rushing out a vaccine in the case of an emergency, or at least that's the excuse. So, you know, it, it, it feels like, you know, in a world in which you can always say there is some potential crisis, you can always justify away any lack of regulation, and you can always uh, justify any amount of spending to, uh, to you know, any amount of spending or, or, or hurting people into an experiment. I, I and, just... And you know, right before we 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 came on, um, um, Ria brought up the uh, um, we, we were talking, and and you said 
you know, there, there's so much, you know, we, we go back and forth, we learn new things and, and then we see new things, but they're the simple principles again, right? You have to go back to the simple principles. And if what you have is a system in which, you know, ultimately um, any piece of information can be withheld from you, any anything can can justify, you know, this sort of bigger picture where there's some, you know, some group of people whom you don't know, you don't know if they have your best interests at heart, and they can be making these decisions for you. And even things that 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 are just so shocking, like pieces of metal scraping off into the vials that would be visibly seen and still ignored, yes. and an engineer explaining to somebody on the phone, "Oh, just change this thing out, right?" Like we we should be talking about surgery level type of engineering at this point, right? That's what we're trusting in. That's yes. that's what we we would expect before before we would find this to be a finished process or or product. I know. And and to me, when you said you don't care, this is to me, I can understand. I don't like it. I can understand that, you know, Moderna and Pfizer were pressured. They had to do all these things. They were flying by the seat of the plants, blah, blah, blah. But something like this story, no go, no go. As far as I'm concerned, you know, this is uh, beyond the normal. And the next thing that I wanted to show you is the other thing. That's the problem. And that is errors, 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 errors. If you look at VAERS, the problem is the number one issue is administration errors, right? Too much, too little, not diluted, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I just want to show you what the labels look like for Moderna, okay? Here is primary 6 to 11, monovalent, blue cap, purple here. This is the bivalent booster only, 18 and over, like if you don't read this little gray thing, you can see that that error is really easy to make. Okay. Like really, really easy. So unless you have it put somewhere else or labeled or you have to use whatever, it can be easy. Pfizer is even worse because they're all have gray caps, booster dose only ages 12 and old. You see here, this is, it says bivalent here in tiny little letters. All right. Here is, you know, these one's booster and one's not monoprimary, you know, one's a booster, one is just the regular primary series. I mean, this is an error waiting to happen. And from a drug company point of view, if you already have a bunch of errors that can be partially or mostly related to labeling, you don't understand how important labeling is in the pharmacy world. It is like really because that is our best way to de decrease errors among other things no way no how has this been ignored by other uh you don't you change the label because it's good for brand name okay it's easy to do and you decrease potential overdoses or underdoses and you even if you want to make a lot of money this is the kind of thing you do regardless same thing with the stainless steel things yeah, the it more is complex things get the less we're just talking about a product, we're talking about a process. Yes. And yes. And to me, or, you know, to us as pharmacists, it's like, um, I can tell you from my friends who work in hospital, you almost need a full-time person to manage all the issues regarding the Pfizer COVID vaccines. If you can compare them all, dosage, storage, and administration, it changes all the time. Here we are, you have to dilute. Okay, here you don't have to dilute. 
here you dilute, there you don't dilute. Okay. So no, no, Maria, sorry, before you get too far off, can you go sorry. back a slide? Because the one thing I am able to see fairly clearly is the bottom left. Let's see if I can do this right here. You've got the one labeled Comirnaty and a couple questions. First of all, is this label being used on doses administered in the continental United States? Well, in, in, in the United States anywhere. Um, or is that a Canadian European logo? Uh, that's question one. Second question, it says RX only, which means prescription only, right? Mm -hmm. What does that mean in this context? Can you answer those two questions? No. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know what? Sometimes that's the best answer. <laughs> um, I do know in Europe, and I think in Canada, we do have a Comirnaty on the label because both have gotten their full authorization, okay? In the U.S., I don't know, but I do think this comes from the U.S. So I think if we go back, the purple cap, for example, won't have that name on it, but maybe the yellow cap does, you see, or the gray cap does. Um, and so that's why you'll have some... I don't think this legal name business is, to me, um, a big deal. That might be more of a legal thing than what's in the vial thing. Does that right. you know what it, I'm saying? It, it, it's a big deal only insofar as uh, if this were not acceptable in the U.S., it would probably not be accepted worldwide. And and this this you know clearly there was a lot of planning involved uh, over the years and understanding of the process, like. You know, if the military isn't willing to take it, most people aren't going to be willing to take it. If if the United States isn't willing to take it, many other countries aren't going to be willing to take it. So, like, that's more in the psychological game. I, I agree with you. I think that's what it is. But I just wanted to point out how complicated all of these different versions of Pfizer are, and uh, the labeling, and how many errors are occurring because of that, and nothing has changed. To me, that is. Uh, I don't know. I just want to bring to everybody's attention. This is most unusual. This is so unusual. And in fact, even at the FDA level, all the uh, advisory committees have been asking at every meeting for uh, clarity on the labels and have asked for single dose syringes because that would increase would increase safety. And all of that's been ignored. And that's when I go back. They don't care. Right. It doesn't matter. And this is most unusual because this is rarely ignored by a manufacturer because this is brand name stuff. This is bad uh, publicity stuff. It's and it's easy to fix. So I find this, um, you know, this is one of my other uh, data points to say that, you know, I don't think they could make anything and it doesn't almost a ham sandwich and it won't really matter. That's where I'm getting close to. And lastly, I just wanted to point out that, so the thing that I think we're distracted about, you see here, we all talk about the immunological phase, correct, about this product. Everyone's talking about the antibodies and what the spike protein does and et cetera. And what's happening is we have this big pharmacological phase before the immunological phase is kicked off. And there you have the kinetics, and this is how you can look at the kinetics for a lipid nanoparticle. And then this part, this author didn't go into it. Then we're having about all the issues with the mRNA and how we talked about how it's made and how uh, it's translated into in the body. So this is what happens. 
So you can't use regular pharmacokinetic principles. It has something, it's more like what we call Michaelis-Menten or enzymatic uh, kinetics. So there's some data to support that at a certain, if you give it at a certain rate or a certain dose, you get a certain effect. If you go up the dose, it's not proportional, which most drugs are because things go by rate. It is disproportional. So a smaller increase in the amount of lipid nanoparticles to a uh, cell may be three, four times greater effect rather than a proportional, you know, doubling. If you double the dose, you get double the effect. That may not be what's happening. And that's why we're getting so many, that's why we're so confused. Does that make sense? Do you know what I mean by Michaelis Menten kinetics? <laughs> no, but I know what you mean by, uh, by uh, the breaking of linearity. Yes, that's uh, what it is. And I think that's what is happening. It's uh, we don't, it's not necessarily linear across all the amounts or rate of, of um, LMP um, administration or the rate of how it's presented to the cell. So, and, and they can't really even offer a curve because, because you don't have enough data points. And, and because each person's going to be different because with Michaelis Menten kinetics, it depends basically what's happening inside the cell or the tissue. And that's individual for each person. I have, there's a drug that pharmacists dose called phenytoin for, um, for epilepsy and it undergoes Michaelis Menten kinetics. And anytime we see it happen, we tear our hairs out because you could go from a hundred milligram 50 to 100 milligrams and you get the double of the level and you get double the drug level in the blood you go from 100 to 120 and the level triples or quadruples and that point at which that happens is individual for every single patient okay and this individualization i mean this could in some sense make it uh very hard ah this is really really interesting because you know with a lot of drugs you have a goldilocks zone yes and and so you know if you have too little you're not you're not getting the job done if you have too much you have toxicity correct now now it uh it, and it may be that you have sort of an even band some drugs um you know but but from one person to the next the variation is not so much that it would cut through that Goldilocks zone. Correct. Correct. But we don't know that about mRNA. It may be that the entire, that the entire potential of the process is impossible to ever make sure that it's going to be safe for everyone. Because if somebody's, if somebody, if, if individual biovariability um, cuts through that Goldilocks zone, then you've cut off a group of people for whom this could ever, ever be worthwhile. Correct. Yes. Yes. That's the conclusion I have come to. So let me go to this slide. So I looked at sources of it. That was, you know, Denis Rancourt telling me, you know, that he doesn't think it's just toxic on his own and the variability is, is not due to batches. And I, so if that's the case, so you have, this is the batch variabilities that we talked about you know, the RNA impurities, the double strength vial, et cetera. The pharmacology, so that's the Michaelis uh, of the LMPs, the, how they're distributed, the kinetics, how they go. Then we have the metabolism of the mRNA. And not all cells are transfected. Not all cells will translate it with fidelity. 
You have individual cell kinetics, which are probably Michaelis Menten, because that depends on the rate of the LMP presentation, and that'll be individual for everybody. And then we get to the antibody production, which is genetically uh, dependent as well. Don't know what the duration of the spike is, the quantity that is made. Is it dependent on age, sex, and weight, comorbid conditions, immune response? And then what about these non-neutralizing antibodies? So just look at this and tell me you can predict what will happen to a patient if you give an amount of the same amount, 30 micrograms of mRNA to everybody. Everybody is going to have an absolutely different response. Some are going to have nothing and some are going to have a great response. And the problem, what we do with drugs is we want it to be predictable, okay? Generally predictable at least 80% of the time. This is why we want to make sure that manufacturing variability is as low as possible. So we're getting rid of one source of variability, correct? And that's the easiest one. The rest of it, we can talk about patients. So it's patient drug variability. And uh, so that's what we try doing with drugs. So with this, we've got the variability everywhere. That is uh, what I've concluded from looking at this for about a year and a half or two. But that's my personal view, my personal um, uh, assessment of the data. Um, lastly, I want to show you this little quote. The head of our vaccine R&D at Pfizer basically said, we flew the airplane while we were still building it. And I'm thinking, yeah, think? Yes, you did. You, you were basically giving it out as you were building the whole product. And I personally think all of this is unfixable. You yeah, this doesn't look like a brag to me. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, no, this is a warning, I think. And she's leaving now. I see that as a warning or as an excuse. Like, this is what we did the best we could. That's my read. I could be wrong. Well, they were moving at the speed of science. science. They had to react to the, to the market something or other, I guess. Anyway, well, so that's my assessment, and I don't know if I'm right or, you know, there's lots of holes here, but all I can say is that, you know, this is the most complicated, multi-layer, multimodal product that I've ever seen, and it is truly uh, a conundrum. It's like a big black hole, and every time I look in and pick something, I find something, and uh, it's, um, it's taken me a long time to wrap my head around all the moving parts, and I'm not sure I really have yet. So. Well, so, okay, well, what frightens me is you've shown not only what we know we don't know, you've shown what they knew they knew they didn't know. Correct, that too. And at a certain point, it's it comes back to what we were saying before. It gets very complicated, and then it becomes very simple. Uh, and you can say, well, now we know what they knew they didn't know, and we know that they know that we know that. But, but in the end, it comes down to they knew yes. that these would likely uh, be dangerous. Yes. At a minimum, so unpredictable. Well, and again, it, it, I, I was about to get complicated again. But it comes back to they knew these would be dangerous. Yes, I think so. And I still, I, 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 I feel like I have to say this as often as possible. Um, people have to consider that this is a national security threat, uh, a global security threat. 
for these processes to to be not up to a point at which we can trust them at that point you have allowed an actor you know outside of nations even right like corporations are they're these weird entities when you think about corporations in relation to nations and when you think about the fact that you know warfare can now take place not just between nations and not just in visible ways um but in all these kinds of ways even like the the eco health alliance whistleblower andrew huff he admits that his job in intelligence was to think about how it is you could like I, i'm just going to use the word poison poison one ingredient that would go into a supply chain and come out in products later on right that that was you know he he was supposed to brainstorm ways to do that and when you know that people are thinking in that way you you realize that that corporations must be treated the same way that you would treat another nation state now if if what had happened with these vaccines was um china came to us or russia came to us and said we've got these products for you would people have accepted that from one nation to another, you know, a rival nation? Um, and, and, and of course, I'm picking the, the extreme, you know, let's say Russia, a rival nation um, says we have this product for you. Would all of these documents look the same? Would the process look the same? If your answer to that question is no, then it should also be no for a corporation because they have interests as well, and their interests are not necessarily aligned with that of a nation. And what we've seen is, and, and, and that may sound out there to some people, like, no, of course, these are these are American corporations. Wait, uh, they're, they're corporate. Where are they? Under whose jurisdiction are they? You know, and, and, and even they are saying, um, you know, they're arguing in like the Brooke Jackson trial that um, that they're not even responsible for their actions mm -hmm. because the DOD wanted them to do something. And then you've got like a new layer of invisibility involved. And uh, there's so many pieces there that people should think about this in terms of at least the potential of fifth generation warfare, because, you know, the, the like the DOD will want to make the argument that we have to do certain levels of like gain of function research. Right, just because of the potentiality that nature accidentally comes up with a weapon against us. Right, that's essentially the argument for studying gain of function research. This, this, you know, um, monkeys at a keyboard could produce a virus that just, you know, it annihilates us. Right, so we have to do all this stuff. Okay, well, same argument here. We should be thinking in terms of the existential threat from from group actors. And no matter what anybody may think about drug companies, you know, there's no test for us to determine whether or not they have our best interests at heart. And so any regulatory process, especially for a new technology, um, especially for one that has the potential to change the body in ways that, that we just don't understand, that process should be much, much greater. And you know what? If that means that it's too costly to be done, so be it. There are things that we can do as human beings that maybe there's no economic reason for ever doing, even if you can imagine that it might be productive. And and just before you you address that, Maria, to, to add a layer here, 
even in the context of what happened, aren't we all under the impression that China uploaded the gene sequence that was then used almost immediately as the basis for at least the Moderna product? But it, it, is it the case that that's also the basis for the Pfizer BioNTech and the basically everything that we've built on top? Isn't that something that was provided by China, who even in the official pseudo narrative is responsible for this gain of function lab leak? Well, that's an interesting point. Yep. It'd be nice to see what that spike protein looks like that's made by that those mRNAs. That's one thing would be nice to see what it does and and we can't. The other thing too is it, it's interesting because Moderna was ready to go with their um, with their mRNA, their genetically engineered mRNA right away, but Pfizer was not. Mm. They actually looked at four different versions and ended up with the one that we have now. They ended up with one they had for just the receptor binding domain. They had another one that was a self-amplifying RNA vaccine, which is horrifying to me because there's no consent at all because you know everybody gets infected and um so they they had four versions and it wasn't until april that they picked april 2020 that uh the current mrna version was um used and 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 technically we still don't even know what's in the vials no and and i want to bring up one important thing again we don't even know if there's 30 micrograms per dose in each vial. There's no way of testing. There's no assay that tests. The only way you can test is take it out, freeze dry the lipid nanoparticles, and then dissolve them and take out the mRNA. It's not what I would consider a quantitative assay. So you have no way of knowing. Um, and that was, uh, I have a discussion with, I don't know if you've heard of Sasha Latipova. She's done, she's more of a regulatory expert than me. And, um, you know, that has been bothering her from the very beginning. And again, it's what she calls, yeah. Uh, so you don't know, you don't know. And you know how some people are saying that there's no mRNA in vials because they do, you know, um, right. et cetera. And, um, and the phosphorus, the phosphate doesn't show up and you have that in the mRNA backbone. And one option behind that, so they think it's all batch things. And I'm telling you right now, it's almost impossible to be that way per batch because all of these are closed system. The mRNA from the beginning to the end is a closed system. Do you know what I mean? There's no hands that go in. So how do you, you know, how do you um, assess that? And then they have to test that there's mRNA at the end. And there's too many people involved. Like you would have that leak. So what we think is happening is that the LMPs, when they're mixed and they're diluted before they go into the fill vial, is not consistent. So it's quite possible, right, that some of that, you know, you have very little mRNA in a vial. And that just shows you the problems. And, and, we know that, theory. and we know that somebody thinks that's important because in Australia, it was negotiated that Pfizer employees get, uh, like, there are different levels of, of, you know, the manufacturing process. Uh, and there are the different batches that were coming into Australia. Yeah. And there was one that was like the highest level of manufacturing process. And and uh, Pfizer employees, and I can't remember if it was like other groups of people were on this as well, but they were guaranteed to only get that, get doses from that batch. Yeah. When anybody is negotiating for that, you know there's variability or you know that there's at least potential where there is an unknown. The yeah. people who are most involved 
say, you know what, I'll take that one, not that one. Okay, well, we've I starred a couple of comments that I thought would be good to briefly revisit. So let's just run through these real quick before we wrap up. Um, in the beginning, the vaccines had to be transported extremely cold for stability, whatever happened to that. And I'll add on to that. I noticed here in British Columbia, our provincial health officer, Bonnie Henry, she, she in her discussions on this topic, uh, very much did flip-flop. And it did feel as though it was only after you know, however many hundreds of thousands of dollars were invested in this cold chain storage transport system that then they didn't even need to use them anymore. What happened here? What's the, okay, what's that, the deal? That, that's not a conspiracy. That's, that's, um, so they first came in these ultra low freezer boxes. They look like a pizza box and they came as 195 vials that you had to put into, uh, you had to put into, um, into some hospitals actually bought the deep freezers, okay? But if I go back to my um, slide here that talks about, so you could, um, uh, there was a label of how, so what happened is that as time went on, they went to see how long it could stay at 20 to 40 degrees. Um, no, no, it's after that. Hang on a oh, second. Oh, okay. Yeah, you take it. Sorry. This one here. See? So the purple cap was the first one. Ultra low freezer thawing period in the fridge, 30 minutes at room temperature. But after you thawed, you could have one month in the fridge. Okay? And two hours at room temperature. And then when the gray cap came along, so they probably fixed either the sugars or what happens is that they actually tested it because this was just being, you know, careful they actually tested to see if what you could do 10 weeks in the fridge 12 hours at room temperature so you see that um it changes mostly they changed i think the buffer if everyone remember they went to a trist yep. buffer yeah and so i think they became a little more stable that way and they were able to test so this was the purple cap it's still around though which uh drives me you know like uh, so you have to dilute the purple cap and you have to store it at a different temperature than the gray cap, which, uh, as you can see, could be another error. But I think that's what happened. One, they tested it and two, they changed the uh, buffer and uh, the sucrose so that it became more stable. Okay. Um Breaking lipid nanoparticles may have saved lives to yes. less mRNA that get into the cells. Now, I've thought about this a lot because um, you have people who it's as if they never got a shot, but they've had three doses and yeah. it's a, and not even like a headache the next day, not even the expected side effects. And I've wondered if between the cold chain, whatever, if there were, admin, you know, errors in storage combined with, you know, nurses shaking the vials before they give them. I wonder if there's something to this. Yeah, I, I think that's quite possible. Plus or other, you know, the mixing, the dilution and the mixing so that you get not, that's why I'm saying it can occur vial to vial, not necessarily batch, but each vial could be different. Mm. All right. So that's what I wanted to bring to everybody uh, based on that. I think the lipid nanoparticles breaking apart now, that would mean you would have a dose of mRNA going into your blood, which supposedly would give you maybe some you know, a little bit of a reaction. Um, also, it makes you really wonder because a lot of the immediate side effects are due to the pegylated product, correct? And uh, there is another product on the market with very similar um, lipids with, um, 
it's called siRNA, small interfering RNA. It's used for um, uh, a disease, for a genetic disease. And that's given IV infusion over 80 minutes. Every single person has to get a steroid and um, antihistamines prior to getting it. Otherwise, they drop their blood pressure and, you know, pass out or arrest in some cases. So a lot, I think, of that is the pegylated. So the fact that they're not getting a reaction to even the pegylated part, like the fever or the chills, um, they obviously have no autoantibodies. And they're probably males, eh? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Because all the females using all that crapola stuff on their hands and their faces all full of peg, they all have antibodies. Oh, very interesting. Okay, well, just moving through these then. So were the nanolipid particles ever made to pharmaceutical standards or were there only industrial standard LMPs used? I'm not aware of really any pharmaceutical standard lipid nanoparticles existing. That, and it's back to what Matthew was saying, you know, how do you assess the assay? Like, how do you know what is the standard if you've never made it before? You right. usually would do that beforehand and basically say, I need it like here. I think the purity of the lipid nanoparticles did get better over time because they weren't that that has happened. And people. So I read somewhere and I can't find the reference that at the time in December 2020, there were 200 people in the world who knew how to run these machines. So they had to train up a bunch of people. Hmm. So things are better now, for sure. Um, I'll, I'll mention this. I have a friend who um, who worked for a company who makes lipid nanoparticles for Moderna, and uh, and you know he he talked to me sort of off the record. I, I wish I could have him on the program, but uh, um, it, the most interesting thing when I talked with him, uh, I, I learned a bit from him. But he told me that they got the order to start making the highest level, like, uh, uh, what's the terminology? Uh, G there's like a three GMP GMP. Thank you. Uh, and what does that stand for? Good manufacturing practices. Thank you. Good manufacturing pra- practices. Um, his company got the order to start making good manufacturing practices, nanoparticles in October of 2019. Hmm. That is one of the things that, that during the pandemic has just stuck in my head. Like really? You know, wow. <laughs> um, it, it it just you know it 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 makes you realize the potential um, for shenanigans in all of this on multiple levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but it also you know it it, it lets you know that that um, there are different levels of these things, and so you know we don't know, you know, what it means that some people were, you know, trained up after the fact. I mean, he's, he's a smart guy, you know, um, are are you bringing in people who are lower quality people then to train up, you know, uh, with those machines or something like that, right? It's one thing to make machines easier. Um, It's another thing to bring people into run the same machines. Yes. Right. These are two different things. Again, it, it's the process, not necessarily the product. Yes. And the if the process can't make the product what they want it to be, then um, that, you know, that's its own issue. There's so many issues. It's so complex. Well, um, this has been a absolutely wonderful discussion. Thank you so much for joining us, Maria. Yeah, thank um, you, Maria. It's been a long time coming, uh, and I'm happy you were able to do it. I hope I I hope I was able to answer some people's questions and maybe ask a for uh, more, but give a better idea of um, of the whole 
manufacturing process? Oh, it was very educational. Uh, I think I have more questions. I, I think I'll have more questions tomorrow than I have today. I, I, it, it's one of those, right? Uh, yeah. There's so much complexity involved, uh, but thank you for taking the time. Thank you very much for asking me. I hope it was good. Well, and you uh, have done and probably will continue to do other such presentations. And I just want to direct people to um, a post I made yesterday on our brand new locals community, um, where I gave folks some pre-reading material, uh, including your uh, paper with the CCCA and the presentation you gave. Was it for the CCCA or was it for? It was. It was? Yeah. I don't know how I missed that. Was that on a Wednesday? Yes. Oh, man. I Okay. Well, I've gotten out of the loop with the CCCA meetings, unfortunately. So I got to get back in. But Matt, are we allowed to, Matthew, are we allowed to, we can say that you'll be speaking to the CCCA soon? Uh, yeah, it looks like the, the 26th. I, I, right. I, I, I saw an email that I'm supposed to answer now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. There's a soft reveal. But I recommend people go to um, go to the link I've put in the chat there. You'll be able to have quick access to not only all the streams that you've now watched today's show on, but the paper and the talk um, that uh, Maria previously gave to the CCCA. You can also become a supporter or a free member of our locals community. And that's where we're going to try to condense a lot of stuff into posts like this one and let people know what's going on in advance. Uh, Maria, apart from those links, which I've got here, is there anything else you want people to uh, to go and look into further? Anywhere people can find you or any more of your work? Um, no, right now I'm just, yeah, I do have a Twitter handle, but it's uh, I got kicked off of Twitter. And I think it's because I said it's a fake mRNA in fake or you know, synthetic mRNA and synthetic lipids giving you with synthetic drug um, trials and everything is fake except the adverse events. <laughs> Which was going to be the title. Like that. Yeah, yeah. I, had, I had a version of that statement as yeah. the working title for this video and it was too yeah. long, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> everything's synthetic except the adverse events including exactly. clinical trials. So, uh, you know, um, but I, I do have a Twitter. It's called Canning Farm D because um, I decided I was going to can this some this summer, and uh, just for fun. That's well, great. you're getting all kinds of compliments from the crowd. Oh, thank you very much. It's uh, two years in, in the making almost. So that's how long it took me to get my head wrapped around this. Frankly, no. Rock on. Okay. Well, thank you again, Maria, and look forward to speaking with you again very. Thank you, Matthew. Shortly. Thank you, Liam. Bye -bye. Oh, I kicked her out mid goodbye. That's always awkward. Um, okay, well, that was that was fantastic. I always like to hear that you're left with more questions uh, than answers. To me, that's a good sign. Right. Uh, it, it, you know, to a certain point. Well, yeah, I think that curve goes like this, you know, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I'm still on the rising end because there is so much, you know, uh, it, it is a lifetime's work to to have uh, a level of expertise in which you have more answers than questions, right? Um, and, and, and that is what is scary about all of this, is the number of people on the planet Earth who are capable of really making solid statements about all of this, right? I mean, you know, it, for how many people is informed consent possible? If informed consent was not possible for Robert Malone mm. or, or Maria Gucci, then... Uh, <laughs> You know, for, for whom is informed consent possible? And when informed consent is impossible, you know, uh, 
well, there's a, a very large conversation that needs to be had before moving forward, if moving forward ever happens. Yeah, well, I don't know about you. It feels as though there is a moving forward happening and it it risks going badly. But I think we're handling things as a, about as well as we can. You know, um, very upsetting information is hitting the mainstream. You have both Pfizer and Moderna officially announcing the beginning of clinical trials into adverse events from their shots. I don't know if you saw that. Um, I, I did. I feel like um, this is part of dragging every process, every piece out so long. Yep. Um, it, it almost feels performative to me. Uh, you know, if, if a process is going to, if, if we're going to be doing this for 10 years or 15 years or something like that, then all, all of the decisions being made now, um, if, if anything is catastrophic, then really they're just saying, we're never going to do this or, or it, it, it's about, you know, shifting our attention. Every time something new is announced, I feel like, are they shifting our attention from something else that's important too? And this is part of the reason why I am starting to encourage people to think in terms of fifth generation warfare, because it, you know, that this, if this means that somebody, you know, you love or know is, you know, dies in the meantime, well, that that's pretty serious. You can't just allow the same process to continue. You have to, to put your foot down at some point or, call shenanigans, change the way things are happening. Yep. And, and, and just a reminder that that, what you just said is the reason why so many people who don't usually occupy this sphere, you know, or this, this area of discussion are here now, because speaking for myself, if, if there's a risk that people that I care about are, are still to this day at risk of being hurt or killed, um, nothing else I do matters. Uh, because that needs to stop now. And I agree with you. I don't like a 10 year, a 10 year timeline. I'd much rather, uh, wrap this up now so we can go back to doing the things that are more traditional in each of our lives. And now we have some new friends to do it with. So there's the benefit, but in any case, this has been wonderful. I'm going to, um, send us to our outro now. Thank you again all for watching. We had a good number of people. Uh, we have 26 right now on YouTube where uh, our partner status is currently on hold, uh, which is fine, I suppose, because we've also just passed 1,000 subscribers on Rumble, which we recently did on Rockfin as well. So thank you all. Uh, in the end, you are the reason why this kind of stuff goes from being in control of some narrative maker, whoever they are, and into the zeitgeist, uh, which is clearly happening. So thank you all very much. Thank you for engaging. Thank you to Maria. Thank you to Matthew. I have been Liam Sturgis, and we will see you in the coming days. Mm -hmm.